Morning, church. It's good to see you this morning. I want to welcome those that are joining us on uh, Edgewood campus. Uh, you're wondering why, why in the world do you have a bat in your hand? Uh, well, uh, every, uh, every so often uh, we will come and uh, we'll give what we call a home run bat away. A home run bat uh, is when uh, we knocked it out of the park. And uh, last weekend, we had 120 plus serve team members that accomplished egg hunts in uh, both communities, uh, Wills Point and Edgewood, as, long, as well as Stone Point Kids on both campuses. We had lots of extra hands uh, helping in ver- a variety of ways and areas. And uh, I think you guys crushed it. And so we actually are giving a bat for Easter 2022, killer teamwork. Uh, and so if you were a part of that in some way, would you please, let's just give them a round of applause. Yeah. One also, uh, really other incredible thing, uh, last week as we talked about the resurrection, it was also the anniversary of Stone Point Church. And so last Easter Sunday, Stone Point had been around 11 years. Um, and so we can praise the Lord for that as well. Um, and obviously we didn't talk about it because we thought the resurrection is a lot more important. And so, uh, but either way, we're grateful for all the, the things that the Lord has done uh, through our church family and uh, through uh, the body of believers here. And many of you have experienced 11 years uh, and we've had highs and lows, ups and downs, good times, challenging times, but in all of the Lord has been so faithful and we thank him for that. And so as we uh, kind of prepare to dive into our time together, uh, we're going to pray and ask the Lord to give us wisdom and clarity, eyes to see, ears to hear, uh, hearts that are receptive. And so if you'll join me, uh, we're going to pray and then we're going to jump into Romans chapter 11. Uh, Father in heaven, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the privilege and also the responsibility of being your people. Uh, Father, I pray that as we dive into your word, that you would teach our hearts. Um, Lord, that you would open our eyes, remove fetters. Lord, help us to see blind spots or areas in our life that we uh, just may lack understanding or clarity. Lord, I pray that you would uh, give us wisdom. Uh, Lord, that you would uh, God, abound in faithfulness and steadfast love um, to us. And we just thank you for your word. Pray, Lord, that you would help us to see it in ways that are fruitful and productive. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, it was a pretty cool night uh, in 1986. Uh, and uh, the Boston Red Sox on October 26th uh, were playing the New York Mets. They were in the World Series Uh, If you know anything about Major League Baseball, you know that when you get to the final series, it's a seven-game series. So the first one to get to to four wins is the champion. Well, in this particular time, the Red Sox were actually beating the Mets. I had them uh, down three to two in the series. Um, Then what happened was is uh, Boston, in game six, kind of began to give some things away. Their pitching kind of stumbled. They find themselves in the 10th inning. Uh, tied with the Mets, when all of a sudden a guy named Mookie Wilson hit a slow grounder down first base, and a guy named Bill Buckner let it go right through his legs. And when it went through his legs, the Mets uh, had a guy round third, scored, sent him into game seven. Game seven, the Red Sox squandered another lead, and the New York Mets were the 1986 world champions. And they figured out, or I guess you would say that it wasn't pitching's fault. It was all Bill Buckner. If Bill Buckner wouldn't have missed it. Matter of fact, Boston began to heckle him so much, he left town. Um, he, he, He left the Red Sox organization, and it was a huge challenge. Buckner's error. Uh, forever lived on in infamy. And if you were to go look it up, you would see a simple ground ball 
that created trouble for him, his family, and the Red Sox organization. Uh, They said that they had Babe Ruth's curse, and they just couldn't win a championship. And sure enough, this little error cost them big time. Well, here's what Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 11. He's talking about Israel's error, uh, that they had stumbled. They They had had some simple things go wrong. They And because of that, it impacted them in really, really big ways. So if you have your Bibles, you want to turn with me to Romans chapter 11, maybe you're already there. What Paul is doing, he's saying, okay, because of Israel's error, there are some things that we have to talk through. And now what was Israel's error? Israel's error was that they were the elect people of God. God chose Abraham. Uh, He called him out of Ur of the Chaldeans. Uh, He said, hey, listen, you're going to be the father of a great nation. He named that nation Israel. He says this Israel is going to be a blessing to all the nations. From this nation is going to become a Messiah. And that Messiah is going to be a blessing to all the nations. The challenge was that Israel struggled to be obedient to God. They struggled to honor Him with their choices, with their ways. And as a result of that, they stumbled over Christ. Christ was a stumbling stone. He was a a rock uh, that sat in a place where Israel stumbled over him. And because they stumbled over Jesus, rejected him, God says, listen, your error will cost you in big ways. And as a result of that, the people of Israel would miss it. They would find themselves looking for ways to honor God. But the challenge was the way they honored God most was to believe in the Messiah. But yet they struggle to believe and they reject him. This rebellion, this challenge was an error in not only their their thinking, but in the ways they walked, the ways they lived, the ways they made decisions. And as a result of that, Paul addresses this error, this challenge, uh, and how it would cost the people. And so Paul even asked the question as a result of Romans chapter 10, as he comes out of it, he asked the question in verse 1 of chapter 11. He says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? which we know as a whole, yes. But Paul says with a rhetorical question, has God rejected his people? And then he says, by no means. And then he he says this, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. So Paul asks that rhetorical question and he answers it. He goes, okay, has God rejected his people? And we know that in part, yes, that God has in many ways set Israel aside. And the reason why is because the starting quarterback, I'll use a football analogy, um, he he had become uncoachable. He had become unreliable. He thought his ways were better. So God said, listen, I'm going to put you on the bench. Can a coach use a number two quarterback to win games when a number one quarterback's uncoachable? Yes, that's what the picture is here. But Paul asks the question, has he rejected the whole team? He says, by no means. He goes, for I'm an Israelite. I was born of, of the descendant of Abraham. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. So what he's saying is, is while the entire nation looks to be rejected because of the error of our ways, he goes, you need to know God is still using some for his purposes. He goes, I'm one of them. Uh, he goes, I, I once was lost, but now I see. I was once blind, but now, I'm sorry, I was once blind, but now I see. He goes, I once was deaf, but now I hear. I, I once was lame, and I now walk. So he goes, God's still doing something. And then he asks, uh, or he says this in verse 2, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. And then he asks the question here in 2, Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appealed to God against Israel? And he does a throwback. And when he does this throwback, he's, he's going back to Elijah when Elijah was 
so frustrated with the people of Israel that he prayed against them. That he actually went to the Lord and he was discouraged with the people of Israel. He was discouraged with their ways, with their rebellion. Because what happened was, is that even though Abraham, the father of the great nation Israel, was called to bless all the nations, the people of Israel went wayward. They put their eyes on other gods as opposed to the one true God. And so in that time, Elijah is challenged by that. He actually is going to end up going to the king of Israel, Ahab, and he's going to, he's going to have a showdown with him as he's praying against the people of Israel. Now, you might ask, well, what was he praying? And it shows us right there. Paul says, do you not know what the scripture said? And then look at verse 3. Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left, and they seek my life. That was Elijah's prayer. So what was Elijah praying? He goes, Lord, your people, they're, 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 li- they're living lies. He goes, they've torn down your altars. He goes, they've, they've killed the, the very voices that you had. Their hearts have been hardened. They're deceitful. And he goes, I'm, I'm the only one left. I'm the only one here that's going to be faithful to you. And he says, and they seek my life. They're wanting to kill me too. If they get me, they get us all. And, and your name will not go forth anymore. That's the implication. And he's praying that. And you might ask, well, why is he praying that? Well, the reason why is because Ahab was evil and his wife was even as evil as he was. Her, her name was Jezebel. Uh, any parents in here on either campus, you name your kids Jezebel? No, there's a reason why not, okay? We stay away from Jezebel. And the reason why is because she was evil. Now, here's the implication. Uh, Elijah is actually going to have a run in. He's going he's to meet a guy named Obadiah. Obadiah is going to fall down on his knees when he sees Elijah. He goes, Elijah, my Lord, you... And he goes, it's you. And Elijah goes, yes, I, I'm, I'm, I want to see Ahab. And he goes, Ahab's been looking for you. He goes, I know Ahab's been looking for me. And he goes, I've avoided Ahab for a reason, but today we're going to have a showdown. And so he says, listen, I want you to go. I want you to go ahead, go get your 450 prophets of, of, of Baal. Go ahead and get your 400 prophets of Asherah and, and meet me on Mount Carmel. And when you're there, bring Ahab with you, and we're going to have a showdown. And here's what the showdown is. If you've got your Bibles, you can hold your spot in Romans chapter 11, and we'll go to the throwback, okay? And so we're going to go all the way back to 1 Kings chapter 18. Now, maybe you're here like, I don't even know where 1 Kings is. Okay, here we go. Here's our test. You go Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, okay? That's five. Joshua, Judges, Ruth, that's eight. First, second Samuel, then you're in 1 Kings, okay? So what's that? About your 11th book, somewhere around there. My math is kind of shaky. I'm from Will's Point. Um, okay, but here's the deal. You're going to fall in 1 Kings. When you're in 1 Kings chapter 18, we're going to dive in, and we're going to look at verse 20. So at verse 20, you've had uh, the challenge go forth from, from, Ab- uh, uh, from Elijah to, to Ahab, and this is what the showdown, this is how it happens, okay? There's been three and a half years of drought in the land, they're needing rain. Elijah says this in verse 20 of 1 Kings. So Ahab sent all the people of Israel. They gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, Hey, how long will you go limping along between two different opinions? He says, If the Lord is God, then follow him. But if it's Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. They couldn't. So here's what he says. He goes, Listen, if you are from the tribes of Israel, if you're... If you're if you are God's people, then he goes, worship God. If, if, you're, if you're not, then he goes, then make a decision and follow bells. But he goes, at, at this point, you need to decide. It's almost as if you remember Joshua saying today, me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. 
It's almost as if he's making that challenge to them. He's going, what are you going to do? You know, stop, stop being tossed to and fro and make a decision. Is it going to be God? Is it going to be Yahweh, the God of Israel? Or is it going to be Baals? Is it going to be Asherah? Which one is it going to be? And they don't say anything. They can't. Then he goes on and he says this. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, underline that if you have your Bible, because it's important. Because what is he saying? He goes, I'm the only one left as the prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. So he looks at himself and he goes, I'm the only one, and there's 450 of you. Then he says, now let two bulls be given to us and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it into pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I'll prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I'll call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers fire, he is God. And so then all the people answered, it is well spoken. So here's the challenge. He says, listen, here we are. He goes, we're going to fix an altar. You're going to take a bull. You choose first. You go cut it into pieces. I'll go and I'll, I'll prepare my bull. And he goes, and I'm going to let you have the altar first. And you're going to get the altar. You prepare it. Just don't do anything to set fire to it. We're going to call down fire from heaven. And he goes, I'll do the same, but I'm going to let you go first. And then here's what he does. He says, uh, after the, the prophets of Baal go, okay, we agree to it. It's well spoken. Verse 25, then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bull, prepare it first for your many and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. Verse 26, and they took the bull that was given to them. They prepared it and they called upon the name of the Baal from morning until noon. Oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice. No one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah began mocking them, saying, Hey, cry aloud. Hey, maybe, maybe he's not hearing well. Maybe he doesn't have his hearing aid in. Is basically what he's saying. Then he goes, Hey, for, for he's God. Or maybe he's musing. Or maybe he went to the bathroom. He was relieving himself. It does say that in the text. Or maybe he's on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. He goes, what are y'all doing? Like, I mean, surely if he's God, you're, he's going he's gonna to hear, he's going to respond. Then it says this, and they cried aloud, and they cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out of them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the ablation. But there was no voice, there was no one that answered, there was no one that paid attention. Verse 30, then Elijah said to the people, hey, come near to me. And all the people come near. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of, of Israel, of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the, the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two seas of seed. And he put the wood in, the, uh, in, in order, and he cut the bull into pieces, laid it on the wood. And then he said, hey, fill jars with water and pour it over the burnt offering and onto the wood. And he said, now do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, hey, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and it filled the trench with water. And then verse 36, and at the time of the offering of the ablation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord. Answer me, that the people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. And then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones, 
all of it turned to dust, and it licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God, He is God. And then Elijah said, Seize the prophets of Baal, let none of them escape. They seized them. Elijah brought them down to the brook of Kishon and slaughtered them there. You're like, what? Yes. And you might look and you go, well, that seems harsh. That means this seems like a very tough penalty. But here's what I need you to understand. What Elijah was doing was consecrating himself, and then he was also ridding out sin. Because if you know anything about God, you know that he is powerful and just, but you also know that he's perfect and that sin cannot come into his presence. And the problem with Israel in that day is that you had so many prophets that had fallen way to um, idols and idolatry and false worship and things that weren't wise. And it was an opportunity for God to remove sin from his presence. And it did have consequences. Now, what's interesting is, think if you were Elijah. Think about that, okay? You, you, you had this significant moment where you challenged the king of Israel, Ahab, and his, his evilness. You call them down to Mount Carmel. You have 450 prophets of Baal show up there. Their God doesn't respond. Your God does respond. The altar's consumed. There's fire. I don't know about you, but I'm like, that's kind of like a Super Bowl moment, isn't it? You're just like, wow, that was incredible. And, and I'm sure there's like something in you that's like, yeah, take that, dude, right? <laughs> Like there's some point of you that you're like, like, yes, my, my God showed up. And I think what's interesting about that is it's almost like an Easter weekend for us. It's like you look back and you're like, dude, that was awesome. And, and you look and you go, wow, that was an experience. And, and our churches might have been full. But the problem is, is then there's church after Easter, right? The next weekend, it's like, like we did the Easter thing. And then it's like, okay, and then... What's interesting is how many pastors are discouraged this weekend because half the people that were there last year, and it's like almost you think if I come up with this perfect sermon series, we're going we're gonna to get people back. And the, the reality is, is you can have deflating moments after highs, right? Think Elijah did? Look what happens with Elijah. You get to uh, 1 Kings chapter 19, Ahab goes and he shares with his wife Jezebel what happened. Jezebel says, listen, is it... I'll put my life on the line, but within 24 hours, Elijah's going to be dead. So she said, so here is Elijah. You have this significant spiritual moment. You're on Mount Carmel. God shows up, and then now he's running for his life, and he's fleeing. And as he flees, he begins to wallow in just self-pity. Matter of fact, look what it says in 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 9 and 10. Um, God had, had sent a handful of different signs. God was not in the signs. Uh, then in verse 9, it says, There he came to a cave, and he lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said, What are you doing, Elijah? He said, Well, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've thrown down your altars. They killed your prophets with the sword. And I, I even... I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Guys, have you seen that before already? Yes. Then you see it again. What's interesting is, is that you're going to see the Lord going to come back to him again in 1 Kings chapter 19, and he's going to have the exact same response. He's going to say the same thing again. So what is Elijah doing at this point? He's going, hey, listen, God, I'm the only one left. They've torn down your altars. They've destroyed your prophets. If they get me, then, then what? Your name is gone. Well, that's what Paul's point was. Paul's point to Israel was, as a nation, everyone seems to have abandoned the Messiah. They rejected him. 
They crucified him. But Paul goes, but listen, God's not done yet. He goes, he, he did something in me. He, he goes, I, I, I once was one way, but now I'm another. I'm a part of the family of God. And he goes, it's because God met me and I saw him and I experienced him. And so he goes, I want you to know that just as Elijah experienced things, we too, but you remember, and that's what he's going to ask in Romans chapter 10. He's going to say, do you remember what God's reply to Elijah was and his self-pity? He says, verse 4a, the first part of it, he goes, what was God's reply to him? And then the last part of verse 4, he says, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed down to the knee to Baal. That's what in 1 Kings chapter 19, look at it. This is exactly what God said when, is, uh, when um, Elijah responded the way he did. This is what God said. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed down to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So he goes, Elijah, you're not alone. You're not the only one, buddy. Can you ever get to a place where you feel like I'm the only one? I'm the only one experiencing these things, this pain. Lord, you're the only one that's asking of these things uh, to me. You're the only one. I'm the only one. And here's the deal. If you look back on the story, what, what was Elijah's appeal to God? He made an appeal. He goes, look, your, your prophets have been killed. Your altars are torn down. I'm the only one left. Is that true? No, it wasn't true. He goes, they want to take my life. Was that true? Yes. But what did the Lord said? But you're not alone. There's 7,000 who haven't bound down. There's 7,000 that haven't kissed the idols. Now, a couple of years ago, I went through a ministry called Regeneration. It's a ministry that we offer here at Stone Point and various other churches do. Um, but the idea of regeneration, oftentimes you think, well, it's, it's about addiction, right? And so uh, you, you must be really messed up to need regeneration. And I would say that's true. I think that's true. I, I, I'm really messed up, and I needed regeneration. Um, but the regeneration is, the, the point of it is, is not to go after a, a particular thing that you think you need to fix. And I think oftentimes you think about regeneration, you think, oh, it's for alcoholics or it's for um, drug addiction or you think it's for uh, pornography addicts. You look at all these different things. And what's interesting is when I started walking through regeneration, those were, those were not things that were on my list. That's not why I went. I went one to model for our church what it would look like for me to be humble and for me to say, hey, you know what? I need discipleship too. And that's what this is. But as I was in regeneration, you know what the things the Lord taught me? Here's what the Lord taught me. The Lord didn't teach me to overcome addiction because there wasn't a, a major addiction in my life. Uh, I say that probably diet sodas. That would probably be one. Um, but here's what the Lord taught me. The Lord taught me where I find comfort and desire. Ultimately, he began to help show me where I was looking for, um, in some ways, security. Now, here's what I mean by that. One, the Lord taught me that I was my own idol. Number two, the Lord taught me that I oftentimes wallow in self-pity. I had Elijah's syndrome. Now, here's how it manifests itself in my life. So one, um, I can see myself oftentimes desiring the approval of man. Can you imagine giving a message on an Easter Sunday and, and then not having anybody give you any feedback? 
Or if somebody were to come up to you and go, hey, dude, like, I love your attempt at Easter, but it landed flat, man. It just it wasn't a good message. Could you, could you embrace somebody giving you critical feedback like that? Like, wouldn't that be hard? It could wreck an entire pastor's Sunday afternoon, right? And so what happens is, is if you're not careful, though, as a pastor, is you're looking for people people's feedback. You're, you're looking for the pat on the backs. You're looking for the kind emails that come through. You're looking for the encouraging notes. You're looking for all those things in some ways to give you worth and value and esteem. The problem is when you get the opposite of that, when you get criticism or feedback that's difficult or somebody doesn't say anything at all, then what you do is you, you begin to think negatively. Like, and so that's one of the keys for a lot of us. We are very good at negative interpretation and so we oftentimes jump to the very worst conclusion. They hate me. They don't like me anymore. They wish they had another pastor. They, all of these things that flood through my heart. And they're real feelings that I have experienced over the last 11 years. Times where I wanted to quit, times where I was discouraged, times where I thought, man, there's got to be somebody better. And all of these feelings can kind of well up inside of you. And in Regen, the Lord just said, Brandon, you are seeking the approval of man and you've become your own idol. Now to confess that to other people is really challenging. But I sat before a circle of about 12 men. I said, the Lord's teaching me that I'm my own idol. That if you give me feedback or praise then I think I've succeeded. If you don't, then I feel like I'm garbage. Now what's interesting, the Lord goes, now where's that insecurity come from? It comes from a lack of value, not a value in self-esteem or self-worth, but a lack of value in who I say you are through the cross. And so the Lord began to teach me where value comes from, which means when I get critical feedback, I can listen to it, but I don't have to be ruled by it. And the Lord is helping me day by day. Do I have it all together? No, because it can still be difficult. But the reality is, is I know where value comes from. But you know the second thing the Lord taught me, the big thing that the Lord taught me, is that if not careful, I want comfort. When times are hard, my schedule is, is incredibly challenging, which in the last couple of years, it's been more challenging than I thought it was a handful of years ago. I have very little time for myself. I have very little time to do anything, to breathe, yet alone to get to another project for someone else. It, it leaves me frustrated. It leaves me anxious. It leaves me oftentimes wanting to quit because I would rather, if I'm honest at times, run and just go mow a yard and do grunt work than to have to solve problems or have one more spiritual conversation. Is that too honest for you? But do you know why? You know why I desire that? It's because I desire to run from hard things. I found comfort. If I could just escape and go lay on a beach, wouldn't that be nice? If I just didn't have to work another day, I didn't need a paycheck, and I, I could just tell people, no, I'm not doing it for you anymore. I'm not having a conversation with you for your marriage. I'm not doing it. If I could just tell them that. And I could just escape reality. Wouldn't that be awesome? And the Lord goes, listen. No. He goes, I didn't call you to these things so that you could have ease and comfort. But isn't that what we desire? We want, we want ease. We want comfort. We want life to be plush. We, we want to be able to lay back. Dads, I mean, we're the most selfish people on the planet. 
as we watch our wives scurry around tirelessly, always giving and pouring themselves, if we're not careful, we'll just kind of kick our feet back. And listen, we're not blessing anybody. And we think, well, I deserve it. The Lord just taught me, now you're finding comfort in the wrong things. You want worship of yourself. And you think if your schedule was easier, that your life would be better. That's what Regen did for me. So you're like, oh, do I need it? Yes, you need it, right? We all do. But the, the point in that is this, is that in all of my comfort and my desire to escape, you know the lie I believed? I believed that God was only calling me to hard things. God, like I'm the only one that you're calling. Why in the world are you going to call me out to this place? Why? Surely there's somebody else. God, why are you wanting me to do it? Surely there's somebody else. God, can I pass that off? And if what happens is you become a master delegator, I don't want to do it, so I hand it to somebody else because it, it promotes ease, right? And the Lord goes, no. Friends, that was Elijah's problem. And, and here's what the Lord taught me through that is that my feelings were real, but they weren't reliable. My feelings were real, but they weren't reliable. I saw something on Facebook just this last week, and I saw hundreds of people like it. And it was like just talking about following your heart. Can I just tell you, like, you need to be careful about following your heart? Why? Because here's what the Scripture says about your heart. Jeremiah 17, 9, your heart is deceitful. It's desperately sick. Who can understand it? Your heart will lead you to things that are not healthy. Why? Because my heart can't be trusted. Listen, if you want me following my heart, I'm probably going to quit next week. <laughs> I mean, I'm just telling you. Like, I'm like, if I follow my heart, there's no telling what I would do. And so I'm thankful that I don't. Now, listen, are feelings real? Yes. And here's how I'd point it. I'd say it this way. Feelings can be a gauge, but they're not to be your guide. So guys, there are times where I know that in my frustration or in my anxiousness or in my stress, I know I've got to dial back a bit. Does that make sense? Like I know, like I need to slip away for a day. I need to get away for a weekend. I know that, that there are things about me that are unsettled and if I'm not careful, then, then I've got to pay attention. And, I, and though they're, a, they're a great gauge for me. Like, I can pay attention, but it's not my guide. So you might ask yourself, well, my heart's deceitful, and I'm getting Elijah's syndrome, and I feel like I'm the only one on the planet that's experiencing these things, and I feel alone, and I feel afraid, and I feel scared, and I feel like I'm ruled by the fear of man, that there's a Jezebel after me. Then what do I do? What do I do? And, and I would say, listen, you trust in the one who is your guide. Psalm 119, 105. The word of the Lord is a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. You remember these words, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6? What did the writer of Proverbs say? Trust in the Lord with all your... Your what? Hold on, Edgewood. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. So don't trust in yourself with all your heart. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. See the difference? Lean not on your own understanding. Your own understanding. You follow in your heart is going to get you in a bind. It's going to have consequences. It's going to have impact. For some of us, it's going to be a family. For others of us, it's going to be an entire church. For some of us, it's going to be an entire county because you're in that type of place of prominence. For some of you, it's going to be a state. For some of us, it's going to be a nation. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your path, what? Straight. See it? 
I fell into Elijah's syndrome. What was Elijah's syndrome? It was that he was praying for a nation in which he thought was gone, and they were. And he goes, but I'm the only one here. I'm the only one doing hard things. Look what Paul says in Romans chapter 10, verse 5. He says, I can understand. And I think Paul probably had a kindred relationship to old Elijah. I think Paul understood persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword, chased by bandits, chased by his own countrymen. I think Paul identified with a guy like Elijah. And so he says this in verse 5, so too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. He goes, that's what's happening here. Elijah, you felt alone, but there were 7,000 with you. He goes, I can feel alone, but there's a remnant here. And he goes, God's doing something. Even though the nation as a whole has abandoned the Son of God, he goes, there's some of us left. Matter of fact, in verse 6, he says, but if it's by grace, it's no longer the basis of work. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. He goes, there's some of us who have experienced grace and the loving kindness of God. And he goes, we've become a, a, a kindred remnant to our Heavenly Father. And he goes, and we're not doing it based off of our own works of righteousness. He goes, we're not trying to keep the law. We're not trying to do good things. He goes, at the end of the day, he goes, we are trusting in God's grace. You know what God's grace is? It's his unmerited favor. Is it a decision by God to grant you his grace, but not based off of your performance in any way? So that means that you could be Bill Buckner. You can miss a ground ball that you should make in the major leagues. And even though the world hates you, Christ still loves you. You can be rejected by men and approved by God. At the end of the day, our worth, our value doesn't come from the approval of men. It's unmerited grace and favor by God, regardless of what you do or don't do. Which is good news to the pastor who last week in their services were full and this week they're half of that. And the the reason why is because my value, my worth as a pastor, as a leader does not come off of attendance. And man, there's a lot of churches in America could learn from that. My value, my worth doesn't come from success in what you think success is. And I think we struggle with that in our culture, don't we? Oh man, how I oftentimes feel for coaches who see real progress happening in ways that, that, that's never shown on the scoreboard. But w- what do we like as a culture? We like what? We like success as we deem it. Man, I can tell you this. Our basketball team this year didn't win a game, but I saw a lot of improvement. Terrible coaching, I'm sure. But at the end of the day, I saw improvement. We had fun. But if we, if we measure it based off of the way we typically measure things, it would, have been, it would have been a disaster. But isn't it good that God doesn't measure it off of what we measure things off of? It's not about our good works. It's not about our giving. It's not about our good deeds. The reality is this, friends. If God has saved you by his grace, he loves you as much today as he did last week when you made a mistake. And you getting back on the train and doing things right is not going to gain more approval or affection from a holy God who's already loved you and sent his son for you. And you and I need to know that and embrace that. Paul says, we have been grafted in as a remnant, not on the base of what we've done, but on what he's done for us. That's his message. And he goes, and there is a remnant. It's not all of us. It's not the whole world. He goes, it's a few. And he goes, by God's grace, God rained down on the upper room with his Holy Spirit and the church was born on 120 people. That's all there was, 120 of them. And he goes, but Peter went to preaching and 3,000 were added in one day. You see it? It's a remnant. That's Paul's message. He goes, Elijah was a remnant, but he wasn't alone. 
He goes, I'm a remnant and I'm not alone. Friends, you and I can be a remnant, but we don't have to be alone. So he asks the question, then verse seven. So what then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking? He goes, the elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. So he goes, so did Israel miss out? Did they miss the whole thing? And he goes, no, they didn't miss all of it. He goes, yes, there were a lot that missed it, but there were several that found it. So yes, there's a whole country that looks to be hardened. But he goes, there, there are some that got it. Isn't that our message today? And then verse 8, he says, As it's written, God gave them a spirit of stupor. When you see the word stupor, it means near unconscious. So he gave, the, they, he gave them a spirit of stupor. They gave, he gave them eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And he quotes Deuteronomy 29.4 and combines it with Isaiah 29.10. What was Paul's point? Paul goes, listen, God is doing this for a reason. The reason that, that Israel is missing it is because God has a grand plan. God is at work, and there is a remnant, but God is doing things in this day and time, even though Israel fails to see. And he says this in verse 9, And David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. And Paul quotes Psalm 69, 22 and 23 as David prays for his adversaries. What was David's prayer? David's prayer was is, let my enemy become so comfortable at his table that it actually is the thing that ensnares him. Let him become so comfortable in what he has, his delicacies and his comfort and his kingdom, that it actually brings a foothold and a struggle to him. That was his prayer. So why does Paul quote this? He quotes it because he goes, that's what's happening in Israel. Israel has become so comfortable with being the Israelites that it's actually ensnared them. They're so comfortable with saying, well, we are the circumcised that it's actually prevented a stumbling block for them. They've missed the Messiah because they think their banquet table is all they need. That's the point here. Which then brings me to this. How do we take any of this text and apply it to us? Well, here's what I would say. Is that all of us, if not careful can one, believe that we're going to find satisfaction and worth from God by working for it, and you're not. God worked his way down to you by sending his son, so you don't have to strive anymore by working yourself to him. And for many of us, that should be good news. The second thing is, is that as I look at this passage, I, I just, I can't help but think about this quote from William Barclay, and we'll kind of wrap up with this, but look what he says. The quote from uh, William Barclay, here it is, right coming, it's coming. The idea is that men are sitting, feasting comfortably at their banquet. And their very sense of safety has become their ruin. They are so secure in the fancied safety, the enemy can, uh, can come upon them unaware. I bet that locked up on them upstairs. They're panicking, they're anxious, right? So let me read it one more time. The idea is that men are sitting feasting comfortably at their banquet and their very sense of safety has become their ruin. They are so secure in their fancied safety that the enemy can come upon them unaware. They're putting their comfort in the wrong place. That was Israel. And friends, my warning to you would be not to find your worth, your value, your satisfaction, or even your own image in the wrong place. How do you prevent that? 
Well, I think Hebrews 13, or Hebrews chapter 3, verse 13 is the answer, where it just says, But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. How do I walk through the process of what I learn in regeneration? Can I just tell you? It's by God's word, it's with his people being led by his spirit. I still have blind spots. I still have things I have to confess, but as I come and I confess these struggles, I have people who will challenge me, who will pray for me, who will, will and sometimes admonish me, help me see things I can't see. And getting to a place where you are so secure in who Christ says you are that you would let somebody else speak into your life is the key. I shared a handful of weeks ago with great passion. Coaches grabbing me by the face mask and yelling at me. And I go, yes, sir. Yeah, I'll do it. And I can just think back over the last 20 years, 21 years of being in ministry. And I think about people that have said a lot less offensive things to me. And I get mad. And I get frustrated. And I go, who in the world are you to speak to me? What would it look like if Elijah would have had some people around him to remind him that he had 7,000 men as a remnant? What would it look like if you had some people around you that encouraged you and just reminded you, hey, you're not alone. The Lord has not forsaken you. He comforts you in your affliction. He allows you to cast your cares upon you, upon him. He is, he is gentle. He is lowly. He is humble. He says, hey, come if you're weary. If you're heavy laden, I'll give you rest. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Friends, that was Paul's message to Israel. He goes, we're not alone. God's doing something. Trust him. And here's my message to you. Friends, we're not alone. God is doing something. You can trust him. He's not trying to rip you off. He's not a cosmic killjoy. He loves you and he desires that you would walk with him. And so may God give us the wisdom, the courage to know his word, to love his people, to be loved by his people, and to experience the joy of knowing him deeply. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for a few moments um, just being in your word. I pray, Lord, that this message is encouraging, insightful. I pray that it's challenging. Uh, but most of all, I pray that it causes us to reflect upon you and the syndrome of Elijah to see this mountaintop experience, to see you bring fire from heaven. Oh, Lord, what would that look like? And then to be running in fear of his own life, doubting you, wallowing in self-pity, forgetting that, that, that you tell us that you'll never leave us, nor will you forsake us. Lord, how could a guy like Elijah forget these things? Lord, it's just a reflection that if Elijah could forget them, I can forget them too. Lord, how easily it is that we're blinded. How easy it is that we drift. Lord, would you help us in our drifting? Would you help us to be honest? Would you help us to find our security, our identity, our comfort in you? Lord, would you help us to love you with all of our heart, with all of our mind, with all of our soul and strength? God, would you help us to be set apart, consecrated for your work? And Lord, for those of us in this room that they... They don't know you. They, they don't know the loving kindness of God. They, they see out of a lens that right now is cloudy and confusing. They're not a part of the remnant. I pray today you would call them. Lord, that you would do a great work in our land, in our, in our hearts, in our homes, in this city, in Edgewood City, in community, our county. Lord, would you raise up people to 
to make a difference globally. And, and Lord, may we just always remind ourselves that we're a part of the remnant. You said that the gates are narrow and few will find it. And so, Lord, we know not everyone gets life, but we do pray that we would share it with as many as we can as we have time and that they would experience the fullness of joy and the life that you have to offer through your son, Jesus Christ. In your name we pray.